Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week for another great Farcast. Have a terrific team lined up for you tonight. Jim Murio, we're going to talk Wall Street as we always do, and he is a Farcast fan favorite. Thank you for the notes about Jim, uh, and we're so glad to have him back with us. Dan Mahaffey, our senior political analyst from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. And then, of course, the famous Tony Fratto will be here uh, for our third segment tonight. Uh, We're very excited to have Tony back with us on the Farcast, terrific economist, and uh, we're looking forward to that. So, lots to talk about this week, and the markets have been doing just a fabulous job of melting higher amidst uh, a lot of fear and concern and consternation. Remember our Farcast creed, though. We believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And above all, we believe that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. So if you're feeling happy or scared or worried, don't make financial decisions. Go, go phone a friend. Call Regis or Kathy Lee or somebody. Get some help in there somewhere. But don't make investment decisions. Sit on the sidelines. This is, uh, this is tough stuff. I often say, remember, forget everything you learned in the 70s. If it feels bad, do it when it comes to investing. Jim Urio is chuckling. He liked if it feels bad, do it. That's good. All right. I feel because it reminds me of the Costanza theory that we've talked about before. Yeah. When your brain and your emotions say sell it, that's when you're supposed to buy it. You remember that Seinfeld episode? Every time. And he's right. You know? He's absolutely right. Just the sagest advice I've ever got from a t- from a sitcom. <laughs> from a sitcom. Uh, hey, welcome, Jim Urio. Jim Urio, of course, is a managing director of TJM Institutional Services. Been on the floor since 1987. University of Illinois BA in economics. CNBC contributor par excellence. He's the best guy on there. You just have to listen to him. Uh, he's an active trader. We get some of the best insights we ever get on the far crash from Jim Urio. Welcome, Jim. Thank you for having me again. Oh, yeah. So we're, we're glad you're here. So did this, look, Jim, we have been talking about you and I for these past several months about a lot of hand wringing. Uh, we have been listening to the negative nabobs natter on about their, you know, onward negativity, negativity and expectations for things just to collapse and be horrible. And yet. Things don't collapse, and they're not horrible, and interest rates are low, and inflation's low, and the markets keep going up. What's going on, Jim? Well, I think that the biggest driver since the December 24th low, and I've not been shy about this. I've screamed it from the mountaintops. The biggest driver has been the full Fed pivot. You know, in early November, they pivot from hawkish to neutral, but then in late December, they pivot from neutral to very mildly dovish, and that was a big deal. That's kind of what's pushed the market up. Um, There's other things that have happened, too. We've gotten good news, I guess, from the China trade talks. It seems like we get good news every day. I don't know what, how much better the news can be other than we've signed a deal and everything's fine and it's verifiable. But either way, it doesn't seem like people are too worried about that. One of the things that concerns me the most as I, I sat and looked at the market today is that there's not much I'm worried about right now. I guess I'm worried about 
um, a, a nasty Brexit, but I really deep down believe that they're going to just keep pushing that back. And by the time they, they deal with it, we're going to be well into the retirement home. Uh, so I, I guess the only <laughs> thing I'm worried about now is those old highs. So we're stretching out. We're, you know, 2911 in the futures right now, 2950-ish is the all-time highs. When we get there, I worry that there has to be a new story to push us higher, and I don't see what the new story is going to be. Okay, so uh, you're, you're sort of, uh, I, I mean, it's, you feel good and that worries you. I mean, is that what yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel sure. good and I'm, and I'm, and I'm worried. It's, it sounds and, like. And I guess that's a cousin to the Costanza theory, right? Well, a little bit, like maybe you ought to be selling, right? I mean, based on a feel good. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, for the investor part of me, and, and a lot of what I do with my own money is not just day trading and two-week trading, but for the investor part of me, I plan on rebalancing. Um, at this point in time, and I think that's always the key to everything. Have a set point of the year where you rebalance, or a, you know, after this Herculean move, you know, since the late December, probably it's time to take some money off the table as well, and see if we can go beyond those highs and put in a uh, some sort of um, you know stabilization pattern above there. So right now, yeah, I'm definitely worried that I don't see anything on the horizon. If that makes any sense to you. Well, it does make sense to me. It makes a lot of sense to me, uh, uh, you know, for that same feel-good reason that always worries me uh, almost in all areas of my life. I mean, you know, I, when I, I caught myself uh, coming home the other night and whistling as I was walking into the house, and I thought, oh, God, she's going to kill me. I don't know what I've done wrong, but this everything, <laughs> you know, it was a nice afternoon. I felt great about everything. I was sure that somehow uh, I, I've, I've screwed yeah, something up. Drop yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. For. Yeah. Yeah, well, but, but I, I, a fundamental, I am. <laughs> for the stock market, though, there's a fundamental reason for what we think, because what we're actually saying is that all the good news that's out there, and we see it, and everybody else sees it, well, heck, that's what this 22% move has been in the yes. last few months. So there's nothing, there's nothing more to add to the soup. You know, okay, so a couple of things. I, I, I am worried about a couple of things, and I see what you're saying, but I, I am worried that uh, somehow everybody's decided that the uh, we're going to get a some sort of a deal from China. It's going to be better than we expect, uh, probably uh, to the plus side, good side. Somehow they've worked out something along with, you know, some sort of penalty phase, some way to enforce all of this stuff seems to be expected out there. And we're supposed to sort of see this in the next within the next 30 days. All of that strikes me as being too rosy. And I think the room for disappointment is probably more, uh, you know, to the downside there. Uh, That 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 has me uh, a little bit a little bit concerned. But um, I'm I think I am I'm just I find myself saying I wish they just give success a chance. I mean, okay, the Fed pivoted. Uh, The economy's, you know, got 2% growth, maybe, or 1.8% growth and low interest rates and low inflation. And we're beginning to see wage gains. You know, we've had this supply side solution to this problem. And the problem with the supply side monetary solution that's been offered is that what we haven't had is demand. We can make more donuts. We can produce more donuts in this economy. What we haven't had, should we decide to produce 20% more donuts, is 20% more donut buyers. Why? Because the average <laughs> consumer hadn't had wage gains going back to the you know 1999 uh, or 2000 adjusted for inflation. So we get a little bit of, inf- of wage inflation here. If the Fed will please God sit on their hands, please God don't do anything. You, you look this Federal Reserve. I'm going to talk to Tony Fratto about this when he comes in. This Federal Reserve, any Federal Reserve, and, and I think Jim 
can, knows what to do with inflation. They can tame inflation. They don't know how to get the damn stuff started, as evidenced by what we've seen for the last 10 years. So when you see a little wage inflation here, guys, sit down, shut up, let it go past a comfortable point. You can always rein it back in. So I'm a little worried they're going to kill this thing before it gets started, but I'm kind of optimistic. Uh, Jim, I mean, am I, I don't am I wrong? share completely your optimism. And, oh, and good. When, well, <laughs> then I don't have to sell today, or you don't, one <laughs> right? or the other. And, and no, we've seen no wage inflation. It's not just domestically, but, you know, I mean, Europe, everything has been stagnant for 10 years. And when we see wage inflation, when the Fed sees wage inflation, they can talk all they want about we're going to let things run a little hot for a while before we pull it in just because we've had such a long time of stagnation. Talking about it and actually doing it are one thing. The market believed that back at the beginning part of 2018 for just a tiny bit, and I'm not suggesting that the 12% two-day drop back in February, a year ago February, was because the Fed saw a little bit of that wage inflation, but it was the spark that started the fire, and there certainly was a lot of dry, dry tinder. And, and when, when that happened, we, you realize a couple things. One, occasionally the market is set up to fail, and that was one of those times it was. But two, there's a genuine worry that when wage inflation rears its head, the Fed will panic and start hiking too much. They've told us they won't. I want to believe they won't, but I worry a little bit. Well, okay, they can't so, spot inflation anywhere else. I mean, we've seen that over time. That's why these, these jokers with the MMT stuff, because you know, MMT works the theory of it is that when we spot inflation, then we raise taxes to rein in that inflation. Well, when has the Fed or any of us ever shown any real um, uh, talent for spotting inflation? We missed it in tech stocks. We missed it in real estate. The only, time, only way we find it is in the grocery aisle, and, and that's where it never is, you know? I've yet to meet a serious economist. And I told you, I, I think I told you, I went to this like think tank luncheon where all of these uh, high level guys, the only the only exception. I mean, it was amazing that Fratto wasn't there. But this was a group of a big deal economists. Uh, I, I somehow got mixed up on the wrong invitation list. And I was sitting there talking to these guys. Every one of them, when when we raised um, MMT as an issue, said crap, unadulterated Crap and more crap, and there was, and it was unequivocal. I mean, it was it, it was terrific. Oh, but I mean, but, but consider this: that two logical people, you and I, are discussing it, so they've won on some level. Well, I guess. I mean, other than we get to say crap a lot, which is kind of fun. <laughs> I like that. Don't yeah. you? Isn't that fun? Well, you haven't said crap yet. Go ahead. No, I, w- I will, but I got to bring it about you know elegantly and, and gracefully. I'm going to wait. We, 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 we've, we've got about a minute and a half left, so you work on your artful uh, phrasing over there. Uh, so as as we uh, as we look, uh, you think that the I mean I think policy risk or you've got some sort of big exogenous event, and that's the so I'm kind of with you there as this thing melts up. When I look at it though, I'm sort of saying okay, I, people are saying what do I do to the end of the year, and I never know what the hell anybody should do till the end of the year because it's too short a time period uh, really to invest. But when you see the gains we've had, I reckon the market can get through 3,000 on the S&P. I don't think that's any great hurdle. That might be even modest. Um, but we've had some, we've had some um, you know, multiple expansion here. People are willing to pay more for stocks. I don't know how far that actually goes. Do you have a sense, uh, Jim Uriel? 
Well, what, here's what I think, is that when you listen to what Larry Fink said today, and I'm, I'm hoping that he sees the inside of it, that there's tons of cash on the sidelines. And if we really believe that this is a Fed-induced rally, then the logical continuation of that is that usually Fed-induced rallies go beyond where they should. And the last leg of that is when people, the FOMO people, start chasing it higher. We haven't seen that yet. My guess is this. My guess is we make it up in the next couple of weeks to those holds, old highs at 29.50. We reject it the first first time there. Eventually we go through it. When we go through it, that could be the first flip of the switch where the fear of missing out kicks in and some of that sideline money goes. And then that could fuel the last significant leg of this rally higher. And I'm not predicting gloom and doom that lands beyond that, but but I'm just saying that that's what will happen, in my opinion. Hey, my buddy, uh, your buddy from uh, Chicago, Jack Berugian, in, uh, uh, back in December said, I'm going to tell you all that this is the next leg to a bull market. This thing is going higher uh, and uh, don't believe all the negative news. I really haven't embraced what Berugian uh, said, and he, got, he, he had lots of reasons for mostly uh, technology and the productivity that would come from it. But So we'll see. Maybe, maybe Berugian's proving to be something uh, more of a genius than, than that for which I give him credit, and I think he's a smart guy. But, uh, <laughs> amen. Amen. I mean, he's a smart guy. Uh, all right. Uh, Uriel, I got to go. Any final words? Uh, you didn't get the C word in there. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just want to say that. Uh, no, and that's a bunch of crap. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I really like is a pullback in oil a little bit right here down to the 62 level. And then I think when oil goes above 65, it's going to go to 75. And in that, when that happens, I'm going to get into more oil names at the time. So that's, that's what I think is the, the next big thing that's going to happen. I have one more idea. You know, I know how good you are at, at doing the short-term stuff. So I will give you a chunk of my money to manage in short-term, and I'll take the chunk of your real money and manage it in long-term. I think we'd do better. What do you think? I'll consider that. That actually sounds pretty good. <laughs> sounds good to me, too. I don't know what to do in the short term. Uh, Jim Urio, Managing Director, TJM Institutional Services on the Farcast. Thank you, pal, very much for being with Thank us. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. We're going to be right back on the Farcast with the great Dan Mahaffey. Stay with us in Washington. I'm Michael Farr. You're listening to Farcast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller, and Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information, or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com. Or call me at 202-530-5608. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. What a terrific section segment with the Jim Urio. 
one of the smartest guys I get to talk to on Wall Street. And he's got a sense of things, ladies and gentlemen. He's done it long enough. And over the years, you really it's hard to tell exactly when when it shows up. But you do have that sort of extra sense uh, about markets and where things are going. And Jim's, I think, is one of the best. So always great to hear from him on the forecast. And he's been right, ladies and gentlemen. He's been right a bunch. So good to listen to him. Dan Mahaffey is a senior vice president, director of policy for the Center of the Study of the Presidency and Congress. He uh, manages their policy programs, master's degree in security studies with a concentration in U.S. defense policy from Georgetown University, pretty good school, Jesuits, got to like the Jesuits, and a B.A. in government with a minor in history and Mandarin Chinese, also from Georgetown. I can't even say Chinese tonight. That that's, doesn't bode well. Uh, he studied in China at East China Normal University in Shanghai, where he conducted advanced language studies and research on U.S.-China and Taiwan trilateral relations. He's done a lot of writing, a lot of stuff, and you know that he's just very, very smart. Dan Mahaffey, glad you're back here with us. Good to be back here. Yeah, very good. And we have Tony Fratto here in the studio. Welcome back, Tony. Thank you. Great to be back in the chair, Michael. And and we are going to... Uh, we're, we're, I'm going to give you your formal, you know that thing that your mother sent me and yes. wrote up about you? I'm going to read that uh, right before you come on. It's going to make, it makes you sound so good. I, I made sure it does include a mention of Montour High School. So. I've got to get to nice. Montour. Sure. <laughs> the Spartans. The, the Montour Spartans we're going to get to. Uh, Dan Mahaffey, um, we have a lot going on in Washington. Uh, you know, week to week, and we go, well, what are we going to talk about with Mahaffey? It's not, can we find anything? It's, can we pick, like, three of the 50 things uh, that there are to talk about. So, Dan, this week, uh, we can talk about China. We can talk about the Fed picks. We can talk about what's going on in Capitol Hill. Or maybe the or 50... Heck, we could go completely off the rails and talk about how all the Starks are back in Winterfell. You know, it's... <laughs> yes! Boy... <laughs> wrong podcast, but, you know... Winter is coming. Exactly. Winter is coming. I think there's no question about... You know, it's weird because I, uh, my kids got me watching, and I have watched every one... Uh, of them and uh, uh, Game of Thrones uh, fabulous um, but Laurie hasn't watched any of them my okay. wife hasn't watched any of them and, and so I was going to watch the other night and she said are you really going to do that I said, what? And she said, well, I've got to catch up. I'm like, you've got to go back to season one. Yeah. I mean, so, that got, ship has sailed. You've yeah. got months of watching this thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, the I, I can't watch the new. Well, that's the standoff. That's the current standoff at the okay. Far household. I'm not allowed to watch the new Game of Thrones until she catches up, starting with season one. Well, that sounds almost worse than the Attorney General and the Democratic Congress. That's almost <laughs> as bad as the standoff. Almost. Uh, tell us about that standoff between the Attorney General, uh, Mr. Barr, and the Democratic con Congress. Well, we're waiting to see what the redacted version of the uh, of the Mueller report looks like, and is it going to be, uh, you know, just mostly uh, big swaths of black with words like "by," "therefore," "he," "then." You know, I think. What do you expect? I think we're going to see a pretty heavily redacted document because. There's so many uh, lanes that uh, Attorney General Barr has said are are off limits to be shared. Okay, uh, okay, but okay. So here's here's anybody, any reasonable person, certainly any lawyer who's going to read that original document. Anybody off the street is going to redact 
certain parts of it, right? Correct. There's going to be certain parts. You have to. You just, any reasonable person says, this can't be released to the public. It's too damaging here and there, right? And there's also going to be certain parts of it that are going to be uh, related to counterintelligence where it involves the Russians. So that, we presume, would be uh, redacted as well. Um, I think, though, where you see it set up is then do they does the House Judiciary Committee uh, Chairman Nadler go ahead and try and subpoena uh, the full version uh, there's a, an issue where it could be seen, they could try and tell the courts that, look, this is also a related judiciary proceeding, even though it's being carried out by a House investigatory right. committee. Right. Uh, and then you get into a back and forth. I think that'll move through the courts. Um, but that would allow you to at least get past some of the con- confidentiality related to what was said during grand jury uh, testimony. Uh, but still, there's not going to be a, a full, unabridged version that's going to be available to the public Somewhere unless someone leaks here. it. Somewhere in here, okay, unless someone leaks it. Well, nobody's going to leak it, are they? I mean, that, that, I mean it's kind Julian, of the they've got, they've got Julian Assange uh, already in handcuffs. Uh, so yeah, he's a gem. Isn't he a gem? Yeah. I, you know, that I have no... That was the best video of the week. Huh? <laughs> yeah, that was the what best video it? of the week, was uh, seeing him... Didn't uh, everybody clap? I yes, mean, we did. We were cheering. Yeah. What like, a no-good bastard that yeah, guy is. Yeah. I'm sorry. This is not a freedom of the press issue. This is an issue of a traitor. I mean, well, I, I'm sorry. The, the, I'm not sorry. Uh, he should be sorry. And, and uh, I, can't, I can't wait for the U.S. to get him back here. Um, we don't do public hangings anymore, I don't think. Is it on the books? It's got to be still on the books in Texas. Everything's still on the book in Texas. <laughs> well, or, you know, go back to uh, Game of Thrones, you know, style and just <laughs> launch him in a trebuchet out of the castle. I think you tell him that he's going to be uh, housed in Texas. That, that could be the oh, most goodness. fun of all. I, how would you feel if you were Julian Assange and they told you they were taking you to Houston? <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be a long plane ride back. Yeah. All, all right. Um, so, but now look, when you think about this redacted version of this Mueller report, and we know that there's a certain part of it that has to be redacted and has to be blacked out. There is that judgment part, right, mm-hmm. that we all presume. And that's the part we're all arguing about, because we know all of the therefores and, and so's will make it in. Uh, how big a margin is that? Do you have any experience, Tony, do you have any experience with these sorts of documents? How, so, in, and, and when it's a judgment call... The Democrats are presuming that Barr is going to make a Republican more protective, mm-hmm. uh, protective kind of a judgment and redact more than he should. Or will he or won't he? I mean, how does that I, work? I just feel like, well, look, I, there are going to be redactions in there. Mm-hmm. And Dan's more expert on that uh, than me, although I've read a lot of redacted documents. Uh, but but I, think, I think to step back from the redaction and say there, everyone's going to find enough in there to keep their fires lit. Mm-hmm. Right. If anyone's looking for resolution out of this, they're crazy. They're going to find uh, the things that they need to keep their fight going until we get to maybe an unredacted uh, uh, version. And even then, uh, it still probably won't be enough to put anything to bed. Mm-hmm. Dan? Yeah, it's going to – I'm going to mix in another fantasy metaphor here. But there's a – the Mueller report has become like that mirror in the Harry Potter movies where you look into it and everyone sees what they want to see. That's right. And the – uh, this is going to just continue uh, in a way that if you're a Democrat, uh, the attorney general is just simply the president's stooge. And if you're a Republican, the, the attorney general is a principled man who's standing up for uh, what, the, what the law requires to be protected. So uh, it's going to be done in a way where each party spins it. And, and ultimately, I think it answers the, the question that I think I said a long time ago on this show 
is that these congressional processes, be it investigation, even impeachment, aren't going to resolve the political issue, which ultimately needs to be handled by the voters in 2020. Okay, so these are I I walk away uh, thinking three things from this redaction and everything. No matter what comes out, is it really going to change anybody's vote? I mean, is there going to be anything in there really that's given the what people are thinking now? Is it really going to change their vote? I don't think so. Will it um, will it revive a, a any real serious discussion about impeachment? Uh, I don't think so. I don't no. think I think that's all past. Mm-hmm. And um, y- you know, uh, and and I think and then I say, okay, is it going to affect the markets? No, markets have moved past. They don't care. There was no there was no big bomb when the thing was released. Markets are over it. So I, I got I got a lot of hey hoo from this. Yeah, that's I don't well, see it. Going well, I think even that if 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 you haven't made up your mind on this by now, I don't think you're the person who's going to turn out in 2020 anyway. Mm-hmm. We're so <laughs> saturated with political coverage and these stories that it's it's not going to be something that uh, I think swings an undecided voter one way or the other uh, if they still exist. As well as uh, you know, that's going to be the the pocketbook issues, the economy, and I think overall perceptions of the president's leadership, rather than any details in the report that that sway anyone side to side. When we go back to that ancient notion uh, of of voter you know motivation of it being the economy stupid, thank you, James Carville. Uh, it's the economy, stupid. We we kind of saw in the last election that hell, the economy was great, and but all of the noise was so negative that perhaps nobody really saw through to this shining economy. Are we past that point? So what I'm what I'm trying to ask is, are we all so callous now and used to the noise level that we can once again focus on the economy? Perhaps to a certain point, but I think we're going to have a different economic discussion coming into this election because of what we're seeing in the Democratic Party and the the socialist notions, democratic socialism versus capitalist, and where you have, I think, uh, you know, the Warren and Sanders wing versus what we're kind of now seeing with the the Biden and and Bernie Sanders is rich. Well, Bernie Sanders is wealthy, and he even, he even went on to Fox News and, and got the crowd there chanting for Medicare for all. There's 52% of Republicans want higher taxes on the wealthy. So you're seeing these numbers suggest that if the economic debate is not going to be about performance, but about who's doing well and who isn't. So tell me about that debate, the who's doing well and who isn't debate. And we've got about a minute left here, Dan, though I'm, you're going to hang around for Tony's uh, segment, too, I hope. Uh, how do you uh, see this economic debate? Define it for us as clearly as you can. Well, I think what we've seen is the the areas of the country where uh, globalization, the loss of manufacturing, have hollowed out the economy. Uh, rural America that's uh, had a significant headwind from the, the president's trade policies, uh, although they're holding out thinking that you know some at some point this is going to turn. Uh, but you have basically two trajectories of the U.S. economy where urban areas, areas with universities where education continues, services, research, kind of that 21st century economy we think of has done well, while the 20th century want version hasn't. And that's fueled, I think, both the Trump base and the Republican Party, as well as the, the AOC wing yep. of the Democratic Party. Yep, yep. Okay, so we can, we're going to have a new kind of a debate uh, mm-hmm. of, of that... 
It's, well, that's why I think you, you it seems see silly to be having. You this, see why I, mean, I think don't uh, we already know the answers? Yeah, to how that all Mayor this Buttigieg works? has stepped forward from that because he is actually very interestingly threading this needle as the the mayor of a Rust Belt city uh, who has reinvigorated it, taken advantage of the fact that Notre Dame is there, its location in the Midwest, some pretty common sense policies, uh, but also looking at it in a way of how do we make the capitalist system work for everyone. Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. When we come back on the forecast, we're going to start, and I shouldn't do this to poor Tony Fratto, but I'm going to start with Mayor Pete, uh, get his insights and opinions about this new phenom, 35-year-old mayor who's uh, really ramping up pretty good in the num- pretty well in the numbers uh, for the Democratic polls. When we come back for the next segment on the forecast. You're listening to Forecast. Thank you for listening to The Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and The Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us. What a great Farcast we're having this evening. Jim Urio, uh, terrific, from the floor of the Chicago Exchange, talking about why uh, he's so worried that he's not worried, uh, really, is what I think Tony told <laughs> us. Uh, I mean, uh, Jim Urio told us tonight. Uh, Dan Mahaffey, of course, always bringing fabulous insights into what's going on in Washington and what's going to define the next economic debate for the next election, we had Tony Fratto in the studio with us. Tony Fratto is here with us tonight, one of our favorite guests, and we know he is a favorite of yours, managing partner and actually the founder at Hamilton Place Strategies. It's a strategic communications and crisis management consulting firm in Washington, D.C., an on-air contributor for CNBC television, uh, talking about the economy and markets in Washington. Lots of the same kind of crap, which is my word of the evening, uh, that I get to talk about, Tony, on, exactly. on, as, as, as a fellow contributor on yeah. CNBC. Do you know, I, I probably have, I may have told you, I am the longest serving paid contributor Are for really? CNBC when did television. You start? God, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's been about 12 years. I just, I just uh, re, you know, re-opt again. And, yep. uh, Mary calls. Yeah. Mary calls yep. and says, okay. So, I think, so it's been, I mean, I'm in my 10th year. Yeah. Uh, and you were on, I know you were on before me. So Yeah. Well, uh, I was on for a whole stretch where I didn't get paid. And <laughs> we call those the dark years. The, the audition. Uh, the, the auditions. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, then, and then light shone with the help of my very good friend, Maria Bartiromo, who looked at me and said, why aren't you a contributor? And I said, nobody's asked me. <laughs> I'm going to take care of it. All right. Great. Thank you. Uh, they really are. They really are terrific. And Mary Duffy, who kind of looks after all of us and is the attorney who handles all of the contributors, is just a delight to work with. The best. Uh, she really, really is. So um, let's see. Uh, he's been in administrations. I didn't finish reading everything your mother wrote, uh, Tony, okay. but but uh, very, very impressive. Great guy in Washington and also an insider. Dan Mahaffey is still with us. Thank goodness. Um, I, I promised I would. I'm sorry for doing this. I, to you. I'd love to love to talk Buttigieg. Will you? All night long. Really? Yeah, I was. I, I'm, I'm not, not going to do that. I was and like, gentlemen. I'm on the very first seat on the bandwagon for for Buttigieg. I was like months ago. I saw this guy talk, saw him ask uh, answer some questions, and I thought, 
well, just listening to him, listening to the way he uh, responds to questions, he was the first guy I've seen in a long time who, when you look in his eyes when he's answering questions, he doesn't look like he's searching for the words that he's supposed to say. Really? Yeah. He is. He knows what he wants to say. He knows what his thoughts are on things. A lot of things I you know, don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, yeah. But he is saying the things that he believes in his head. So he's and genuine. He's genuine. And he's given, he's given a lot of – look, guy's a – He's articulate He's a vet. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's, you know, a pretty, pretty smart guy. Speaks, you know, seven languages and uh, – uh, and I think he's a thoughtful person, and he appears to be a really nice guy too. Like it comes off that he seems, seems like to a be very a, nice guy. Seems to be a really nice guy. Okay. And so we'll see. Can a nice guy win? I don't know. Dan, yeah, and I think there was an interesting juxtaposition last night as we saw the the heartbreaking events in Paris, where uh, President Trump is saying to to use water bombers on a medieval cathedral, and, and Mayor Buttigieg is looking into the camera and and actually saying in French uh, to the reporter that it's a uh, you know, that this is a gift of all civilization. And it, it just kind of is an interesting contrast that I think a lot of people are going to be looking at because I look at the polling data, and when asked who they wanted uh, in the Democratic primary, most Democrats said Barack Obama again, if they had that option. And it's that same kind of youthful, thoughtful, kind of breath of fresh air from the Midwest vibe that I think has a lot of running room left in this primary. I think a lot of people thought early on, well, it might be they might get that energy from from Beto, but now I think they're kind of seeing that Beto's just kind of flaky and yeah. The, the yeah. Beto balloon was was interesting yeah. to see, and it, it was kind of a following on from that Texas race, but it really that it, it's got the. The, the youthfulness, but a, a even more thoughtfulness. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know whether he can win the nomination, you know. And right. I don't know. Look, it's. I mean, I don't know whether. I don't know whether America is going to elect a black uh, a a, um, uh, a gay man for president. I just don't know whether we did. We did. We did the black man for. We president. did. Uh, thank we did you. do that. Yeah. We, but I don't know if I don't know if America will will be there. But there's no question. About, that guy's the most talented person in that field. He is. He is. He's a really talented person. Uh, okay. So you know, I, I read a great article um, I th- last weekend. Uh, I think it was in the Washington Post. Uh, I believe it was in the Washington Post, and it talked about uh, how old is too old to be president. And and this was a study, and basically of of cognition and and ability and decision making and everything else at various ages. It's really fascinating. And by the way, I'm writing book number four uh, exactly on this subject, which is uh, uh, how to manage old money. Is is what I'm writing, and it's basically how you plan to manage your money after the age of seventy. Everybody wants to be that fifteen percent who are exceptional, uh, who can you know hold it all together and be the ninety-year-old who goes to dance class and plays golf and then plays bridge for three hours, and and they don't really know that they're ninety. Most people don't do that, and if you're one of those most people. How do you make sure you don't screw up everything financially? And how do you maintain your family relationship and all those sorts of things? But the article, and when I've, uh, uh, the book's not out. If you don't think I can't get more shameless than that in pitching my book, you're absolutely <laughs> wrong. You, have, you weren't around the last time I had my third book come out. But, uh, you know, it's, it basically said uh, past, uh, you get close to uh, into your 60s, and you already in your 60s begin to slow down in your ability to, uh, synth- synthesize information, to say the word synthesize, you have problems with that too, uh, and uh, actually to have abstract concepts. You, you do that very, very slowly. You m- older people make up for it with wisdom and experience, 
and there is a trade-off. But if you have to make a split decision and you're 80 years old, you're in trouble. That, that, I mean, so how old is too old? And then with uh, Mayor Pete, how old? How young 30. is too young? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think he's 37 right now, right? Uh, is he? 30, yeah, 37, so he's 39 by the time he would... Uh, so constitutionally, he'd be right where Kennedy's right, age. He'd be right around Kennedy and uh, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Yeah, so not not, not far, and, um, you know, these kids are all smarter than, than, <laughs> than we are were. Are these... Uh, I is, think, yeah, I, I think age at the top is, a, is an issue, right? I mean, I think you do get to a certain age where... Don't we all know that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I'm, 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 uh, I'm uh, a generation shy of uh, those guys, and, you know, I feel it, right? I mean, we all, we all kind of feel it. I don't feel old, okay? I'll be uh, 58 next week. I do not feel old, but I do not feel young. Um, I mean, physically, I can uh, when I go out running and I go on my runs and I feel pretty strong and I go to the gym regularly and all that stuff. I don't run that fast mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, I think I think what happens or I, look, this is I a, sweat a, a lot thing when I run slowly. <laughs> is do you are you set in your ways? Like so, the information that you have used to sort of set the principles that guide your thinking. Are you willing to expose them to new information? rethink those those views we haven't you know we haven't seen that with uh president trump right there's a i mean the, the time after time the, the arguments he makes about china are the arguments that he made about japan right 25 years yeah, ago right. or 30 years ago and uh you know his views on lots of things seem to be set back into a late 80s early 90s kind of um perspective so we don't really see that um you know, but look, we here we are. Where the Democrats say, if you go poll Democrats, they say that uh, they want youth. Uh, the two guys leading are septuagenarians, um, and so that may just be name ID. But right now, Pete Buttigieg is uh, number three. He's, he's, he's right yeah. there. Yeah, he's coming up at number three mm-hmm. now. Beto, uh, so clearly an attractive candidate, a handsome guy. He's, he's he's very charming and all of that. His his ideas are very much to the hard left um, and don't have much of a centrist appeal at all, and he doesn't seem mm-hmm. to care. Uh, I don't know enough about Buttigieg. Uh, is he more centrist? Is he far left? I mean, he's clearly an attractive candidate. I think he's trying to find out how centrist he can be in this Democratic primary. And and we have to also understand that the, the, the other data that was interesting to see was that when you see the uh, you know, Twitter going nuts over uh, something Biden said or or who he hugged, that that's only about a third of the Democratic electorate. There's about another two thirds that kind of just goes about their daily business, kind of wants a, a pragmatic, normal approach, kind of the, the normal center left Democrats we think of when we think of Bill Clinton, uh, you know, and that's the- from his mayoral campaign uh, and from what we've seen so far. Uh, is he more of that centrist Democrat? Well, in a sense, yes. He understood that South Bend would have to get uh, have to get business back into the into the town to rejuvenate itself. It had to be tech. It had to be innovation. You had to play off those uh, those abilities that the private market has uh, that government can't always accomplish, uh, as well as understanding that there were certain areas where uh, government has to perhaps lay the road. For economic growth, but ultimately that business will get you there. there. There's something to, to uh, there's something to say about the, the the experience of being a mayor, don't you think? True. Like, almost everyone, everyone who runs for president should have been a mayor somewhere else. I like that. Idea. Right. I mean, yeah. there, there's a practicality to it. There's a closeness to your your actions and uh, how they impact 
people, if you know the garbage isn't being picked up, if the schools aren't working, if the r- roads have potholes, if the street lights aren't working, if you know services aren't being delivered in efficient ways, if you're running budget deficits, or you know there there isn't any, any other people to turn to, so you have to do that. Jobs, you got to bring the you know grow them and bring uh, bring companies in. So you know they have they have they develop pretty good. So talent. if yeah. if if Pete Buttigieg and and I think. The, the question, the the elephant in the room question is, if he were not gay, would he just be more of a shoo-in, or will his sexual orientation, uh, you know, keep him out of the American voters' polling booth? I th- that is, the, that's the, I think to me right now what we're looking at, that's the question for yeah. this, this this campaign, right? Yeah, I don't think yeah. it matters as much in the Democratic primary if if you get to the the general. Well, election. this guy got through South Bend. Yeah, I mean, if you can get if you can get as a thirty five year old gay man elected in South Bend, is that enough of a proxy to say you can get invested? The mindsets are are changing on that nationwide too. Even young Republicans tend to be very open to LGBTQ. uh, Don't care really. No, they don't care. No, they don't care. It's not an issue for young people at all. Absolutely, bedroom issues, marijuana legalization, all of those. They don't care. Social issues. They, you know, move on. Okay. Uh, and so are we going to move on because we're, of course, out of time. But we're going to go a little long here, ladies and gentlemen, because I don't get Tony Fratto in the studio that often, and I'm going to take more advantage of it. <laughs> Tony, give us uh, a bit of a temperature uh, check and a weather check here in Washington. Uh, it's a different season. It's springtime in Washington. What does it feel like on Capitol Hill? You know, it's uh, – I'd say this to people. You know, those of us who have been in Washington for a long time, um, you know, I came here, really started living here around 1991, you know, would visit before that. Washington is a wonderful place to live. I mean, it is – in fact, it's getting better every year. There are better facilities. There are better museums and restaurants and uh, it's cosmopolitan, right? It's, right, we have, right, right, right. I mean, there are things to do and see here and it's fun. It's, it's an easy city to live in. You know, New York can be a hard city to live yes, in. Yes, yes. D.C. is an easy city to live in. Professionally, it's never been more – raw and right. toxic and difficult. Um, you know, the re- all the relationships are difficult. Working on anything is, uh, is really, uh, is a real, is a real challenge. Finding, not like there's this, you know, this view that back in the day it was easy to get bipartisan agreement. It was never easy, but people genuinely liked each other across. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, was, right? everybody e- harkens back to the days when Tip O'Neill would go drink beer with Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And we, we all, I mean, I think, all, I think all of us who, who came to Washington, you know, maybe pre Monica Lewinsky, yes, have that experience in Washington. And we kept it post Monica Lewinsky, yeah. but the people who came up, who came to Washington post Monica Lewinsky, uh, I think there's a there's a they have a different edge to them. That was the defining moment, huh? You think? I think so. I mean, I think that your uh, Monica moment. Well, my, it was, it, there were a lot of things that came together, right? It was it was it was Monica. There were things around the Clinton presidency, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, yes. people keep reminding me about the uh, the, the cattle futures. Uh, you know, yes, climate, which was like it is like maybe one of the greatest trades of all time, right? Uh, Hands down. Yeah. So things like you know, all of that, and you know the the you know the Gingrich Congress, and then Gingrich you know Gingrich's um, uh, personal failures also, right? There was a lot of the, that 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 period in the mid to late nineties 
I think, pulled people apart. Monica Lewinsky was the biggest yeah. story of that period, so I use it as a proxy. And, but there were a lot of things that came together. Yeah, you have that. You have partisan media going national. You have a, right. a generational shift as, as the greatest generation where they all served in foxholes together. They didn't care about R&D then. Uh, they're getting replaced by a new generation that had been fighting the culture wars their entire life and fighting in, on the political battlefield their whole life. Tony, when you walked in, I was in the middle of talking to Jim Urio about my great economic theory mm -hmm. for how we might be having some green shoots of wage gains and increases here. And I think he, he accurately said, well, uh, yeah, but the Fed will kill it before it has a chance to grow. Do you think I might have something, or what do you see economically? Because that's your gig. I think the, I think the Fed has... Has stepped back. Right? I think I think they're pretty clear on it. Uh, I think they're, they're going to stay step back. Do you? I, I do too. Yeah. I, yeah I, I don't share Jim's concern on that. I mean, I think there. And you saw it even you know recently, in the last twenty four hours of comments from uh, Evans and Rosenblum, and um, that we should be thinking. You know, we should be okay if by you know exceeding uh, exceeding the the two percent target. And um, and I think there's greater acceptance of that. Right now, and it's not just the. I know that people are going to look at it through through a political lens and say, "Well, the, the president beat them up over it." I right. do think people want to see whether we can get, um, you know, whether we can get wage wage gains. I don't think the Fed, and I talk to people at the Fed and yes. governors, yes. and you know, they they you know they're they're happy to see uh, wage returns. I think they are going to be. Um, I think they are going to be data dependent, but. The data is going to have to be very, very clear and sustained before they uh, before they change the direction. And I think they'll telegraph that change, you know, early. But we're away. Well, I think we're a long way from that. And therefore, the economy is still doing okay, and you don't see this this bit of a recovery and this uh, little bit of a green shoot coming apart anytime soon. I just think soon? we're going to return to trend growth. I think that's two percent. I think that's where we're headed towards. You know, and everyone should be pretty happy about that. Now, I don't like to be. To say that, I mean, maybe I don't know whether we've gotten enough out of uh, fiscal stimulus. Yes, um, but I think you know where we're heading is is probably you know something in the range of two percent growth, and that'll be that'll be really terrific. Well, I'm going to have my Cudlow moment here because I'm normally not that uh, that that out and out bullish, but Far is going to suggest even it's a Cudlow moment when I refer to myself in the third person, just starting right there. <laughs> Far is going to suggest. Far is going to suggest. Michael Far, what do you say? Far is going to suggest uh, that we have green shoots in these wage gains, and that we could actually see an uh, organic demand-driven expansion begin to take hold. Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for the end of the year. I think that the Fed governors have said that they're going to stop their bond sales, portfolio sales, sometime in midsummer. I think that's still going to happen, Tony. You, yeah, and I do. we're going to go. Get, yeah, we got to no, get out of here. I agree. I'm with you there, and I do. I do think that's. I think that'll continue to give this more legs, and I think we're in that range until we get past the 2020 election. And that takes us above S and P 3000, and I think definitively, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us again here on the Farcast. Sorry, I went went a little long there in the third segment, but when you get you know Fratto and Mahaffey and hanging around, it's just it's just too interesting. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. I have a very full and grateful heart to each and every one of you each and every week. We'll be back next week with another Farcast in Washington D.C. I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. 
We're always happy to hear from you. You can reach us at farcast at farmiller.com. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security this week, you haven't. Farcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope that you find the information useful. But before you make any investing decision, we always recommend that you do your research and discuss with your financial advisor. If we can be of any help at Far Miller in Washington, please give us a call at 202-530-5600 or email us at invest at farmiller.com. 